Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. These are the words of God. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. And remember, we looked at this word last week. It doesn't mean an innocent mistake. It's the Greek word for deceived. Uh, There's a culpability. There's a moral culpability here. So what Jesus is really saying is yourself deceived. He says, and that's due to two things, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, notice spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's ask God to to bless his consideration uh, of his word. Our Heavenly Father, you've given us a heritage of your your word, and you you intend it to be food for us, food for our souls, food for life. You intend us to live by every one of these words. And yet we're completely dependent upon you to do that. And we pray that by your spirit, you implant this word within us. Give us a taste of your glory and your greatness and all that you have in store for us, both in this life and in the life to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Sadducees, said Jesus, did not understand the scriptures and they did not understand the power of God. And it's because they had preconceptions about God that closed them off from the scriptures and that closed them off from God's power. In other words, it limited God's power. They had made up their minds ahead of time who God was, what was the nature of what he was doing, what was the nature of his salvation, what was the nature of his glory, what was the nature of what he had in store in the future, and they imposed that grid, that dark glass, over the scriptures. And then they claimed to get all of this doctrine that they had from the scriptures. Well, they were choking the scriptures, they were thwarting the scriptures, they were limiting the scriptures, and therefore they were limiting God's power. That is not the situation we want to be in. To understand the scriptures and the power of God, we need three things. First, we need faith. The Bible teaches us in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is a complete categorical statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
And then it gives us a little description of the very basics of what faith means. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith involves coming to God. If you have faith, you will come to God. Faith does something. Faith walks in a certain direction. Faith moves, and faith moves to God. And it involves a belief, a conviction, a knowledge that God is. God is. And it also involves a conviction and a knowledge and assurance that God is a rewarder. That's his basic nature. God is a rewarder. And so you start to see that true faith has nothing to do with the platonic conception that our love for God should be utterly divorced from anything that we should hope to receive from God, for that isn't real love. That's satanic. That's what that is. That's satanic. It's impossible. Because God has created us from the beginning that we can't do anything apart from receiving from Him. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, we can't love God disinterestedly. We can't start from a neutral basis and just love God the way He loves us. We can't do that. Every, all of our love to Him is a response to His love. And it says, as I read in the call to worship this morning from Psalm 16, what does it say? It says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. And these, by the way, are the words of the Lord Jesus. This is the prayer of the Lord Jesus, really on the cross. And so Peter quotes this psalm in, in his sermon on Pentecost to show the resurrection. It is really the Lord Jesus who is saying, You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will show me the path of life. For in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so God shows his love by giving good things. And it is not love to not love the good things that God gives. It is not some kind of love for God to not love the good things he gives. What kind of husband or wife would be considered a good husband or wife because they don't love the good things their spouse gives them? That doesn't mean you love your husband or your wife when you don't love the good things they give, they give you. I love you disinterestedly, which is to say, I don't love you at all. That's what that means. We must understand, and faith understands, that God is a rewarder. That doesn't mean that he can be bribed. That doesn't mean that he can be bought off. That doesn't mean that it's a, it's a crass relationship where we're all just gold diggers, uh, manipulating God, acting like we love him so he'll give us good things. We all know the difference between a loving spouse and a gold digger. The difference between the two is not that the loving spouse doesn't love the good things that their spouse gives them. The difference is the gold digger separates the gift from the giver and only loves the gift. The good, the good lover, the good spouse, is the one who loves the gift precisely because it's connected to the giver. And so it's all caught up in the love for the giver, and that's the way we are to receive from God. And so faith understands that God is a rewarder. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, diligently seek him. So because of these convictions that God is and God is a rewarder, God is a blesser, God is a giver, faith comes to God and it diligently seeks God. That's what faith does. So we have to have faith. 
Paul in Romans 14, 23 says the opposite of Hebrews eleven six. He says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Any part of life, any part of you, your thoughts, your emotions, your imaginations, your desires, your hopes, your vision for life, your concept of where your happiness is coming from, anything in you that you divorce from faith, that you shut off from faith, that you carry on apart from faith, is sin. Already, before you do anything. Because you're denying God. You're denying the source of all life. You're, desire, you're denying the source of all happiness. And then we see finally that this faith has a very special vision of and relationship to the Word of God. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He talks about why he was so thankful for the Thessalonian Christians. And this is one of the reasons. He says, we, this, for this reason we thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. You were glad to hear it. You, 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 you received it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You received it for what it was. You understood what it was. It's not the philosophy of Plato. It's not the philosophy of Aristotle. It's not great thoughts by some person who had an high IQ or was otherwise considered a cultural flower at some point in humanity. You understood this is life. This is the word of God. This is God disclosing himself to us and, and revealing himself to us. And so faith has that relationship to the word of God. So faith is the first thing we need to understand the scriptures and the power of God. The second thing we need is humility. Humility or meekness. James says in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 21, Receive the implanted word with humility or meekness, which is able to save your souls. So, Notice his conception of the word as something that is living. It's not information, it's not words, it's not thoughts. It's living, it's life, it's food. We're meant to eat it, to take it in, let it go deep within us. It's the implanted word. It's able to save your souls. James says, therefore, it's very important that you receive this in a certain way, that you understand how to receive this. And he says that's with humility or with meekness. Now, what's he talking about there? He's not talking about um, that you uh, hold your body in a certain posture when you read the Word. He's not saying getting down, lay on the floor, throw some dust on your head, um, don't take a bath for a week. Uh, you know, he, uh, he's not saying that. You know, remember the conceptions that the Pharisees and the scribes had of fasting. That they, would, you know, they wouldn't change their clothes, they wouldn't take a bath, they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't shave, they wouldn't do all these kind of things. So that everybody could know just how spiritual they were while they were fasting. You know. No, uh, Jesus says, no, put on your best clothes, clean up, put on some perfume, put on some cologne, look really nice, put a smile on your face. Because you're fasting Godward, not manward. And so that has nothing to do with receiving the word with humility or meekness. What it means is you put yourself under the word. 
You don't come with your preconceptions to lay them over the Word. You come, you, you take your assumptions about the Word from the Word. You interpret the Word according to the Word. And you continually put yourself under the Word. You don't, if you read something and you don't understand it, if you read something and it doesn't make sense, uh, maybe like uh, this part of the Law of Moses here, that uh, the Sadducees reference, where in the Old Testament, if a brother died having a wife and had no children, then uh, his brother was to take his wife and raise up children. Maybe that kind of thing. Maybe that kind of thing you read and you just go, I don't know what to do with that. You know, that seems really weird. Okay, maybe you don't know what to do with that. Maybe you need to stick that in the too hard to do folder for a while, you know. Um, but you know God if you're placing yourself under the word. And you know he doesn't do stupid things. You know he doesn't do wrong things. And um, I don't understand everything that's going on with that. But I do understand that in the ancient world, oftentimes uh, the widow would be left destitute apart from this. And I also tend to think that this was a way of saying to his people in the ancient world, which is an extremely dangerous place. If you think today is dangerous, you know nothing. Um, it was a way of saying what the military uh, says to soldiers. Nobody left behind. Nobody left behind. If you go down, we're not leaving without you. If you're wounded, we're not leaving without you. If you're dead, we're not leaving without you. Nobody left behind. It was really a way, I think, part, partially of God signaling life, of God signaling resurrection, of signaling eternal life to his people. This is a way of saying your name is not going to be lost. Your name is not going to be forgotten. We're not leaving anybody behind. It's just a thought. But anyway, what it means is you place yourself under the word. You don't stand over the word. You place yourself under your, the word and you let it wash over you. So humility or meekness is the second thing we need to understand the scriptures and God's power. And the third thing we need is a sanctified imagination. A sanctified imagination. And I'm going to be speaking for the rest of the time this morning on that concept of a sanctified imagination. And before I get into talking about what it is, I want to talk about what it is not. I want to show you what an unsanctified imagination looks like. An unsanctified imagination looks like the Sadducees in this text. And what did the Sadducees do here? How did their unsanctified imagination show up? Well, with the Sadducees, they absolutized life as we currently know it. They absolutized life as we currently know it. And in this case, it specifically showed up in their view of marriage and family. They basically said marriage and family and children as we currently know them, that is everything. And therefore, resurrection life would have to be a pure, pure continuation of life now, and therefore of marriage and family now, which is what drove their hypothetical and made them conclude there is no resurrection 
because it, it, would, it would completely garble life as we know it. Okay. So basically, they're saying, if marriage and children are a good thing, then you have to leave them exactly like they are. That is a sanctified, an unsanctified imagination. And so they said that marriage and children, a good name and posterity, they are the only glory and immortality that we can have. I want to show you another example of an unsanctified imagination. And this one comes from the church. Many in the early church, in the early centuries of the church, made the same error as the Sadducees, but in the opposite direction. That is, they provided a complete break or discontinuity between life now and life in the resurrection. And they particularly did so with regard to marriage and family. They seized on Jesus' words here <clears throat> that we will be like the angels, not marrying or given in marriage. And they concluded that celibacy, being like the angels, was the true way of discipleship. And marriage was at best a lower form of Christian life for those who are too weak or carnal to be celibate like the angels. So marriage and family, if not sinful, are a lesser form of spirituality than the ideal, which is being celibate like the angels. And so you can see the early church based on this very text, and I would argue also based on a different form of an unsanctified imagination, went to the opposite pole from the Sadducees, and they did so based on a common conception, a common presupposition, something that they were bringing to the Scriptures rather than getting out of the Scriptures. And that common presupposition was this. If marriage and family are good, if they are the gift of God, if they are a blessing, if they are glorious, then they must be all that will ever be. God can never change them, for to do so would be to trash them. On the other hand, if God is going to change them, then that necessarily means they must be inferior and they must be avoided if possible. It has to be one or the other. Now, the problem with this either-or approach is the same problem the Sadducees had with the teaching of Scripture on resurrection. They weren't paying attention to who God has revealed himself to be. They weren't paying attention to what God has already done and what he promises to do, all of which provides us with a trajectory. We can't see everything exactly but it gives us a definite trajectory of what God is going to do in the future, including in the resurrection. Now, the pattern of life that we see with God in the Scriptures is the pattern of from glory to glory. From glory to glory. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says that we are being restored in the image of God, and that therefore takes us from glory to glory. And that shows us also the way that marriage and family uh, fit in. The view of the, of the Sadducees, also the view of many in the early centuries of the church, forgets one thing. When it comes to marriage and family, 
God did not have to do the human race that way. God did not have to do the human race that way. Think of what the Bible shows us about heaven and the angels. We catch glimpses of this, but it's consistent glimpses. God created heaven complete. Heaven is fully complete, it's fully perfected, it's fully glorious from the beginning. God creates the angels all at once. He doesn't create two angels, male and female, and build the angels as the race. He creates the angels as a host. They're full, they're complete from the beginning. Now that's the backdrop. Then we come to mankind and the earth, and God does something completely different. He creates an earth that is perfect in the sense of being flawless. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no flaw in it. But it's imperfect in the sense of being fully developed. It's imperfect in the sense that it's not fully glorious yet, fully developed. And he creates one man, and then he creates a woman from the man, equally each of them in the image of God, and yet he creates one of them male, and he creates the other one female, and then he joins them together. There's two of them. And from that, he's going to bring life into the world through children, and he creates mankind as a race which he is going to build over a very long period of time into a host. And he's going to take man from glory to glory, and he's going to take the earth from glory to glory over a long period of time. And see, the question becomes, why did he do it in such an unnecessary way? Why did he do it in such a way that takes a whole lot more time and trouble than doing it the way that he did heaven and the angels? When you ask that question, now you're asking the right question. Now, sanctified imagination is kicking in. And the more you think about it, the more you're going to wonder, and I don't just mean wonder in the sense of, hmm, I mean wonder in the sense of be overwhelmed. And the more you're going to glory as you see the glory of God. With the conception that many had in the early Christian church of marriage, the best you could say about it, marriage, sex, children, was that they were a necessary means to a good end of building the human race. But when we really look at scriptures, we see marriage, sex, children are wholly unnecessary, completely unnecessary. We start to see that they're not a need. And when we realize that, the more we think about it, we start to see that they are a privilege. The Bible tells us that the fundamental purpose of marriage was not being a necessary mean to procreate the human race because procreation itself is not necessary. The fundamental purpose of marriage was to reflect Christ in the church. So what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, and the verse he quotes from Genesis and ties it into Genesis is, is a verse, is a saying that God said, let a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and let the two become one flesh. God said that before the fall, not, not after. That was before the fall. That was in perfection. And so the, the fundamental purpose of marriage is to reflect Christ in the church. And you have to remember the church as the bride of the Son of God is what the human race was created to be to start with. When Jesus brings about the church, he's restoring God's creational purposes, not coming up with plan B. 
He's restoring God's glorious purposes. And so when God creates a relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, to reflect his relationship with mankind, and through that relationship determines to create new life and to nurture new life, he is enabling us to reflect him and to participate in his life and glory in a way that we could not otherwise do. And that really is the point of marriage and procreation. It's glory, it's participation in the life of God from start to finish. If the building of mankind is glory and participation in the life of God, its consummation in the resurrection will be even greater glory. And that greater glory will be built out of the first glory. That greater glory will be not some great break with the earlier glory that God created, but the natural end, the full flowering of that glory. So here we start seeing how sanctified imagination works. It doesn't mean that we can exactly see everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it does not, not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We can't see exactly, but we know this. We shall be like Jesus. He also says that it has not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. He also says that in 1 Corinthians. We can't imagine exactly. God tells us we can't imagine exactly. That's not what sanctified imagination means. Because we can't imagine. But sanctified imagination does mean we understand God. We understand the glorious way he does things. We understand the gloriously unnecessary and really extravagant way that God does things. And we get a trajectory. And we get little glimpses. And if the Sadducees had had that, they never would have said, this resurrection is ridiculous. Somebody might have come to them and said, well, what are you going to have if you have seven brothers and the same woman because they never have kids? And then, you know, who's going to have her? You know, sometimes you have to go, you know, I don't know. But I do know God. I do know what he's done. I do know what he promises. I know it's glory now and it's glory then. And I know the two are connected. And the reason why we can't imagine it is because the glory is too great. That's what Paul says. It's too wonderful for us to imagine. And yet the wonder and the glory will become does not involve a trashing of the earlier glory. It is not the glory of reincarnation. We become totally different people. Everything's disconnected. A new life. You see people that you knew before and you go, Have I met you before? No, it's the glory of resurrection. It's the glory of resurrection. We know the difference will be like the difference of Jesus before his resurrection and Jesus after his resurrection. Now that helps us a lot. But even if we didn't have that, because the Old Testament saints didn't have that, we could still have a sanctified imagination, which means it's just full of glory. We get the glory now, and we know the greater glory coming 
and we glory in the glory. And we wonder at the wonder. That's, that's what it means. And we know it's going to be great. But now we have Jesus. We, don't, we have Jesus before his resurrection and we have Jesus after his resurrection. And there's a lot we don't know. But just the fact that we see him interacting after his resurrection with the disciples as recorded in Scripture, again, gives us some more uh, sanctified imagination uh, to build on. And so we know that Jesus, he was the same, and yet he was different. Jesus was sinless before. We, we will be sinful before. We'll have even more of a difference because we will go from sinful to not sinful. Jesus was already not sinful. So there's, there's a greater glory in resurrection life, even if you take out the, the factor of sin. There wasn't anything wrong with Jesus before, was there? No. That's why he could be our Savior. But he's even more glorious after. And yet it's the same Jesus, and yet it's a different Jesus. Sometimes the disciples recognize him. Sometimes they don't recognize him. He appears. He disappears. He seems to walk through walls, as it were. And yet he eats. He eats with them. Um... There's a reference in the Bible to God's people in the Old Testament when they ate manna to men eating angel food. Now, is that, is that just a poetic turn of phrase, a concept, meaning that this is a gift of God from heaven? Maybe. Is it possible that angels eat? Yeah. We know Jesus at least could eat after his resurrection because he did eat. And we really know, when we look at it, that really food and meals and stuff like that, it's all about koinonia. That's, that's what they're all about. In other words, you receive, what's life really come from? Koinonia with God and one another. And what's food and meals all about? Koinonia with God and one another. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's a tangible way of kind of holding on to koinonia. It's a tangible way of kind of sharing it. So we see these things, and we see this greater glory that Jesus has, greater authority, greater power, and yet we see he, it's not a radical break and a complete discontinuity of who he was before. It's a culmination of who he was before. Okay? It's a full flowering of who he was before. Okay? Because remember, he had no sin before. Think of it this way. Will Jesus have scars on his hands? Yes, he will. We know it. He told Thomas, reach forth your fingers, stick them in my hands, and be not unbelieving, but believing. That's continuity. Probably the only scars in the life to come, the only scars in resurrection life will be those that Jesus bears. That's continuity. Are those scars glorious? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And so we know that it will be the same kind of way when we talk about everything in this life. The wonder and the greater glory that God will show us then will never, ever, ever be somehow inconsistent or, or, or a trashing of the wonder and the glory he's already shown us. For all of God's wonder and glory is a reflection of who he is, and who he is does not change. 
So it will never ever be the case, even though what Jesus tells us is like we're not given in marriage or having marriage at that time, and it's like that's very intriguing, and we can't exactly fully imagine. But it will never ever be the case that marriage and family and children are like some fashion style from the early 1970s. Those of you who were alive in the 1970s and were at least in the teenage years know what I'm talking about. If, uh, for the rest of you, if you're too young, get a movie made in about 1970 and 71 and look at the dress. I mean, I understand child's changes and our, our sense of aesthetics changes, but I'm just telling you, that was a hideous time. <laughs> and uh, all, of, all of us who lived through that want to destroy all the photographs, you know, which is, which is um, why I made a big mistake when letting one of my daughters go home to visit my mom without me being there. Because <laughs> they got the pictures out. Okay, so it's never going to be like a, a style in the 1970s where we, we look back on marriage and family and procreation and we, think, and we think, man, you know, I thought it was groovy at the time, but looking back, that was hideous. You know, I'm embarrassed that I was ever associated with that. Get rid of the pictures. We will never ever think of marriage and family and children that way. The glory we know then will always be a greater culmination and a fuller expression of the glory we know now. It will be a building up and not a tearing down. All of this is what C.S. Lewis captured in his wonderful phrase, further up and further in. He said that's what heaven means, that's what the life to come means, that's what the greater glory means, further up and further in. And so Lewis, who was one of the great ones at exercising a sanctified imagination, Lewis conceived of heaven as being more material and more concrete than the life we know now. We always conceive as, you know, heaven as being like a cloud and nothing's really solid. Lewis sees that instead of us having less gravity, we'll have much greater gravity. It's very interesting that the, the Hebrew word for glory means heaviness. It means having gravitas. It means having great weight, great solidity. So I think, I think Lewis may be on to something there, but it's what he was talking about when he said further up and further in. God says it hasn't entered into our heart what God has prepared for those who love him. So accept it. We can't fully imagine it, but, he's, but that's not a problem because it's because we will go to an even greater wonder and goodness. In Ephesians 2, uh, Paul talks about God saving us, how we were dead in our transgressions, but then God made us alive together with Christ Jesus, raised us up with him already, seated us with him already positionally in Christ, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the riches of the glory of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we can't know everything about it, but it's going to be great. So while we can't fully imagine things, we can know God. We can know his ways. We can know he moves from glory to greater glory. We can know that this greater glory is always a, always a culmination of the earlier glory. We can know that marriage and children are solely for the glorious purpose of enabling us to more greatly know God and to more fully participate in his life and glory. To let us have some kind of a taste of what it is like to give life, to nurture life, to know what it is like to be in a covenant bond of complete commitment. 
of what it is like to do that. And that's something the angels can't know. They watch. But they can't experience. We experience. So preparing for life in the resurrection does not mean disengaging from life now. Here's where we start turning to application. Preparing for life then does not entail disengaging from life now, which is what a lot in the early church thought. Disengage from marriage, disengage from sex, disengage from having children, disengage from family life, go out in the desert, uh, stand up, sit in a pillar, do whatever, disengage, disengage, disengage as much as possible. The more fully we embrace life now as God intended it, the more fully we will be ready for life then. The more fully we embrace, embrace the glory God has created now, the more ready we will be to embrace the fuller glory God will bring about then. This is why the scripture says, taste and see. Not, oh, wait until you can taste and see. Taste and see. Taste is physical. The more fully we embrace and taste the glorious life God has created right now, the more of a foretaste we will have of the even more glorious life God will bring about then. Now, that means if you're married, if you're married, taste and see. Taste and see. Do not disengage from marriage. Be fully married to the glory of God. If you're a husband, love your wife as Christ has loved the church and give yourself for her. If you're a wife, you know, show the kind of honoring love and, 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 and respecting love that is food for men's souls. If you're a husband, show the kind of cherishing love that is food for women's souls. Why does he create slightly different food for us and food for our souls? Glory, that's why. Glory, that's why. If you're single, this is important. If you're single and you're of marriageable age and you want to be married, it's very important you understand something. You are not half a person. You are a whole person. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 20, 12, he said there are eunuchs, in other words, there are those who are celibates. There are some who, who can't get married, who cannot procreate. He said, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, have been made by eunuchs by men in a fallen world. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, he was meaning celibate there. In a fallen world, we have all of these things going on, and God is Lord over all of them. And remember the context of these words that Jesus spoke. The context is the high and glorious responsibilities of marriage. Jesus has just expounded to them and completely done a broadside on the first century Jewish view of a divorce, which is that pretty much a husband could put away his wife for anything that displeased him. It was a very one-sided thing, but don't, don't get caught up in the particular direction of sexism at that time, because now we experience the opposite. And for an example, the United States Supreme Court declared in 1973 that a father has absolutely no right and no connection to the child 
who's in the womb of the mother? None. But then they wanted to pay child support if the mother chooses to let the child live. So the, the, what the world does with sexism is it washes back and forth and back and forth because male and female, husband and wife, uh, masculine, feminine, family, children, it's, we can't get any of it right. We can't even begin to get any of it right until we come home to the triune God. And history shows us that. But Jesus is saying, talking about the commitment and the love and the bond that is involved in marriage. And then the disciples are stunned, they blanch. And they say, well, if this is true, it's better not to get married. And then that's when Jesus says, look, whether you're married or whether you're celibate, whether you're married or whether you're single, the point is to serve God where you are and to acknowledge God's glory. You serve him where you are. So if you're single and you want to be married, but you're not right now, you're not half a person. That's something the church, I think, understood better um, in earlier centuries because they had far more of a, of, of a conception of, uh, of those who were single serving God in the midst of the body of Christ. Um, because in the olden days, there were a lot of reasons why people couldn't get married at different times. You know? So you are a whole person. Serve God where you are and, and seek first his kingdom. Remember this. Our most fundamental identity is not male or female, it's not husband or wife, it's not married or single. Our most fundamental identity is image of God, which means child of God. That's what that means. And that means disciple of God. That is your most fundamental identity, disciple of God, child of God. And therefore, that is your most fundamental duty and privilege, regardless of your circumstance. Walk with God, serve God. Um, if you're married, fully embrace, embrace it and glory in it. Taste and see. It's a privilege. But if you're single and want to be married, you're not. Remember, the most fundamental privilege of all is fully yours, and that is the privilege of walking with God as a son or daughter. Of knowing him, serving him, and being part of his kingdom purposes. So hopefully... Uh, this will help just a little bit whet your appetite and to get your sanctified imagination churning in accordance with the greatness and the glory of who God is and what he is doing. And hopefully this sense of glory and greater glory will, will fuel and give you new energy and strength to serve God and rejoicing uh, in him. It says in the Westminster Confession, one of the great uh, answers of all time in the, in the shorter catechism, you know, what is the chief end of man? And it says, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It was one of the great, uh, one of the great things the church has, has ever written. But I want to say to, to many of you, it may be that you need to turn that around. And you need to say to yourself, my chief end is to enjoy God and to, and to glorify him forever. Because there's many of us in this sinful world who culmination of who we are and how we came up and all our life experiences and so forth, the thing that most keeps us from glorifying God is we don't know how to enjoy him. We don't know how to rest in him. We don't understand that we don't need to perform for him to be accepted that our performance is a function of joy 
It's a function of glory. It's a function of enjoyment. And so if you, if you fall into that category, and, I, and I, think, I think many of us do, turn it around. What is your chief end? What is your chief end today? I don't care what you're doing. What's your chief end today? To enjoy God, to rest in Him, and to glorify Him. And I commend all of this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.